Hello again, and welcome back to Everyday Anarchism, the show that finds anarchism, non-domination, cooperation, mutual aid in your everyday life. I am your host, Graham Colbertson. This is another episode, episode 7, if I'm counting correctly, in my multi-part series on David Graeber's book, Debt, including the two prequel episodes. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, I recommend you go back and start with episode one of that series, which is called Against Economics. I'll link to it in the notes. This is my discussion and analysis of the key ideas of chapter three, which is called Primordial Debts. This chapter took me forever to get. I think I was on my like fifth reading of it when I felt like I grasped what he was up to. The chapter has a line in it, I'll give you the whole paragraph, that I'm always quoting. Um, it comes at the end, and what I hadn't understood was how this connected to the rest of the chapter. So I'm going to start with this bit that I love and really opens up the idea of anarchism, and especially of Graeber's anarchism, and then we'll work our way back to this line. This is the great trap of the 20th century. On one side is the logic of the market, where we like to imagine we all start out as individuals who don't owe each other anything. On the other is the logic of the state, where we all begin with a debt we can never truly pay. We are constantly told that they are opposites, and that between them they contain the only real human possibilities. But it's a false dichotomy. States created markets, markets require states. Neither could continue without the other, at least in anything like the forms we would recognize today. You see in that quote something that I consider just quintessentially Graeber, which is that his version of anarchism is unapologetically against most standard left-wing politics. I heard Graeber interviewed on another podcast once about his book Bullshit Jobs, and he pointed out that jobs is a big point of agreement between the left and the right. He said, if you see people marching on the street, there's a good chance that they are marching for jobs or better jobs. And the plutocrat looking down on them thinks, those stupid hippies need to get jobs. So the left and right agree, jobs are the answer. Graeber was obviously completely of the left and so am I, but I don't think it's really that simple for anarchists. In some ways, yes, anarchists are the left wing of the left wing. And in other ways, I think anarchism doesn't fit well in that left-right dichotomy. Jobs are an obvious one. If the left wing wants more, better paying jobs for everyone, and the right wing wants to maintain a class of both highly paid executives and a reserve army of labor, aka the unemployed, then being against jobs makes you neither left wing nor right wing. It's the same way for this market versus the state question. If you want to very roughly plot the various major political ideologies on an axis, you can start on the right with, let's say, anarcho-capitalism, then go to laissez-faire capitalism, a.k.a. libertarianism, welfare capitalism, then social democracy, then democratic socialism, and then a USSR-style command economy. That's roughly how I would chart them anyways. And the question in this case is how much is the market in control? In anarcho-capitalism, the market is completely in control and can perform governmental functions. In a total command economy, the state is completely in control and it performs market functions. And then everything in between is a version of a mixed economy. I want to note here that I didn't include fascism on that list because fascism being in most ways the ultimate right-wing ideology amalgamates the market state thing in a way that doesn't really fit into the left-right window the way I've outlined it. I guess that makes fascism, like anarchism, something that breaks out of this divide. 
Uh, Dwight McDonald, who I consider an anarchist, he certainly was at various times, also he was a Trotskyist, describes the Nazi war economy as a form of socialism. And I think that's that observation, which is more or less true, really gets at this problem. So now back to this continuum. If you're an anarchist, you don't want the market to control the economy. And if you're an anarchist, you don't want the state to control the economy. If you're an anarchist, you don't believe in the state or the economy. So this continuum from anarcho-capitalism, which you know isn't really a form of anarchism because it not only believes in the market, but believes the market can act like a state. So it's doubly not anarchistic. So this from anarcho-capitalism to a communist plan economy, the anarchists just aren't on this continuum. And this is why, although I agree with all of the advocates who come on this show and say we just need to slide our world a little to the left. I also fundamentally disagree with them about certain things. If you've listened to the show from the beginning, you've heard plenty of luminaries, Cory Doctorow, Mike Duncan, Cliff Mark, etc., argue that we need to get more social democratic. And you've heard me agree with them, because I do. Kim Stanley Robin was another one, and I liked his way of thinking about this. Um, it does the best job of generating solidarity on the left. The only difference between a moderate Republican and an anarcho-communist that really matters is somewhere in the future. If you can think about Election Day and the choices between uh, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, there's no dispute between the moderate Republican and the anarcho-communist. They both want the exact same thing in that moment. They want to defeat Trump. Somewhere down the line, we're going to break apart. But right now, everyone to the left of where things are right now is on the same side. But although I think that's a good way of thinking, I also think that somewhere down the line, the break is coming. And it's different from just sliding further down that continuum to the left. And, you know, that stupid horseshoe theory of politics, as wrong as it is about so many things, it is right about this. Anarchism is off the map. It's not on the continuum. And that's because it rejects both state and market. You know, if you haven't accepted Kropotkin's central claims, which obviously I have about anarchism and people and how the world works, it just makes sense that what we need is a system that does a better job of giving people what they need. And that a democratic or worker-controlled government is the best way to take power back from the corporations and give it to the people. But I don't really think we need any sort of system. We just need to live our lives in our communities. And the government that you think will protect you from corporations, well, the only way you get corporations is if they are legally incorporated, and that comes from the government. And the only way you have an empowered government is if there's some sort of commercial activity that runs through the government via taxes, aka the economy or the market. The belief that the government is the answer is wrong. I would say that. This is an anarchist podcast. Even though, when I say that, that makes me agree with Ronald Reagan. But he was also wrong, because he thought the answer was the market. And the market is the government, and the government is the market. I don't think it's a mistake that the guy who said the government can't help you literally represented the government. The best way I have to make sense of this comes from Friedrich Nietzsche. And uh, Graeber is about to talk about Nietzsche a ton in the next chapter. And just weirdly, I'm using the same chunk of Nietzsche that Graeber is using, but it's actually unrelated to the points Graeber wants to make. Nietzsche, by the way, is also at least a philosophical anarchist. Um, so in 
chapter four, you'll hear about Nietzsche's discussion of how debt and guilt are the same thing. And when he's talking about that, guilt and debt, he also starts talking about punishment and why we punish. And Nietzsche says when we punish, we keep doing the exact same thing. Our punishments haven't changed much. Our explanations for why we punish changes. But those explanations aren't the important thing. The important thing is the activity, and we keep doing it, and we don't know why. Here's Nietzsche. To return to our subject, namely punishment, one must distinguish two aspects. On the one hand, that in which it is relatively enduring, the custom, the act, the drama, a certain strict sequence of procedures. On the other, that in which it is fluid, the meaning, the purpose, the expectation associated with the performance of such procedures. The procedure itself will be something older, earlier than its employment in punishment, that the latter is projected and interpreted into the procedure, which has long existed but been employed in another sense. In short, that the case is not as has been hitherto assumed by our naive genealogists of law and morals, who have one and all thought of the procedure as invented for the purpose of punishing. So what Nietzsche is saying is that people punish because they've always punished. And then they make up reasons for why they've punished. And then those reasons change, but they keep doing the thing. And they don't even remember why those punishments started. That's lost to the mists of time. And that, I think, is what is going on with these theories of state socialism. The state government, it is all about hierarchy. It was born in force and pain and murder. That's why it was created, and I think Graeber and Wingrow wanted to bring that out of the mists of time in the dawn of everything. But people who believe in democracy and are trying to be against hierarchy just keep telling us that we need to have senators and prime ministers and taxes in the name of equality. But the procedure, <laughs> the procedure, which is you get a group of people together in a big fancy building somewhere, and they can demand taxes of you, and also your life, is still happening. We've projected this idea of democracy into it. But the procedure of hierarchical centralized power hasn't changed. You used to have to pay taxes to a king, which he would use to pay soldiers in the name of his own glory. Now you pay taxes to a government, which uses those taxes to pay soldiers in the name of democracy. The only thing that's changed is the names. So now that I've gone on for a bit about this, let me take you to Graeber's story of how we got to this confusion about what we are up to when we pay taxes. It is taking part in hierarchy. It's not about serving one another and contributing. Graeber starts by bringing us back to the myth of barter, Adam Smith's explanation of how and why we use money, which is to say why the economy exists. Now, remember, there's nothing mathematical or empirical about the myth of barter, but it does claim that we have to behave in a mathematical and empirical way. And here's Graeber's explanation of how that works. Above all, the wealth of nations was an attempt to establish the newfound discipline of economics as a science. This meant that not only did economics have its own peculiar domain of study, what we now call the economy, though the idea that there was even something called an economy was very new in Smith's day, but that this economy operated according to laws of much the same sort as Sir Isaac Newton had so recently identified as governing the physical world. 
Newton had represented God as a cosmic watchmaker who had created the physical machinery of the universe in such a way that it would operate for the ultimate benefit of humans and then let it run on its own. Smith was trying to make a similar Newtonian argument. Okay, that's the end of the quote. So this is God as God as the market, really. The market becomes God, or at least as the creator of market conditions. Just like gravity works on the universe and creates cosmic harmony out of the floating dirt, so would buying and selling create civil harmony out of human activity. But this is just wrong. It's wrong in our time, when the U.S. government intervenes constantly in the economy. Always has, always will. It intervenes in economic ways, with the central bank setting loan rates. It intervenes in direct imperial ways, with laws backed by the police and the military. And yes, police and military, because it intervenes in the economy in the U.S. and all over the world. This was also true in Smith's day, as Graeber points out. Just replace truth, justice, and the American way with truth, justice, and the British way. Graeber also points out that when the Roman Empire fell, quote, in the Middle Ages, for instance, everyone continued to assess the value of tools and livestock in the old Roman currency, even if the coins themselves had ceased to circulate. His point being there, if you want an enormous market, you have to have a state, even if that state no longer exists or exists only over in Constantinople and doesn't have any influence over these markets, you still have to imagine a state. Without the state, without the government, there's no economy, there's no market. Much of the rest of this chapter is description of uh, chartalism, which is the wacky, iconoclastic, weirdo idea that money has value because governments say it has value. Uh, as you know by now, chartalism is correct. The only opposition to it is the idea that money is intrinsically value, like silver is really good, this is dumb, the chartalists are right about that. But Graeber thinks he's found a nationalist canker hiding in the heart of chartalism, and by extension, in modern monetary theory as a set of policies, and in all left-wing attempts to make government money work for us. This is where Graeber tells one of the most famous stories from this book, one that he admits is oversimplified, but is also essentially true. Here's Graeber. Why did kings make subjects pay taxes at all? This is not a question we're used to asking. The answer seems self-evident. Governments demand taxes because they wish to get their hands on people's money. But if Smith was right, and gold and silver became money through the natural workings of the market completely independently of governments, then wouldn't the obvious thing be to just grab control of the gold and silver mines? Then the king would have all the money he could possibly need. In fact, this is what ancient kings would normally do. If there were gold and silver mines in their territory, they would usually take control of them. So what exactly was the point of extracting the gold, stamping one's picture on it, and causing it to circulate among one's subjects, then demanding that those same subjects give it back again? This does seem a bit of a puzzle. But if money markets do not emerge spontaneously, it actually makes perfect sense. Because this is the simplest and most efficient way to bring markets into being. Let us take a hypothetical example. Say a king wishes to support a standing army of 50,000 men. Under ancient or medieval conditions, feeding such a force was an enormous problem. Unless they were on the march, one would need to employ almost as many men and animals just to locate, acquire, and transport the necessary provision. On the other hand, if one simply hands out coins to the soldiers and then demands that every family in the kingdom was obliged to pay one of those coins back to you, one would, in one blow, turn one's entire national economy into a vast machine for the provisioning of soldiers, since now every family, 
in order to get their hands on the coins, must find some way to contribute to the general effort to provide soldiers with the things they want. Markets are brought into existence as a side effect. All right, that's the end of the quote. Kings make money, which is what makes markets, and kings do it for their own power. The left-wing dream of seizing the power of the king to stop the power of the market is actually incoherent. We like to complain that corporations are making too much money for making weapon systems for the Department of Defense, but that's kind of the whole point of government. And although I like the idea of seizing the government and having it make food and shelter instead of guns and bombs, Graeber has convinced me that the market is just a government racket. And if the thing that created the monster is the government, giving the government more power is the wrong solution. Which brings me, this is kind of a side note, but it keeps coming up, to the question of UBI versus a jobs guarantee. Graeber completely believed in modern monetary theory, which is a theory of where money came from, aka it was made up from debts but within a state system. But if you ask MMT people what it means, they will often give you a description of how money came to be and a set of policy proposals, the most important of which is a jobs guarantee. But this is not part of the theory. This is an idea of what we could do if the theory is true. There's this thinking, if money is just made up by the government and, you know, jobs are good, then it should be the government's job to give people what they want, which is a job. Democratically controlled jobs for everyone. But the only way to make a jobs guarantee work without massive inflation is tons of taxes. And the only way to enforce taxes is with lots of police and lawyers. So if you want a jobs guarantee, you'll end up with a bunch of hierarchy and bosses and markets and everything that you just had in that example of the soldiers being paid in gold and the peasants being taxed in gold. I mean, not only will the logic be the same, but some of the jobs will be soldiers of taxation. Universal basic income, I think, reverses the whole logic. Instead of you owing the government, owing the government tax, and also owing the government your job, the government owes you. And UBI hits your face, not the king's on the money. There will still be a market, I guess, but it's kind of an anti-market. You, not the government, create the market. And I'm on record, and I will stay on record, that this inversion of things, I think, will weaken both market and government and empower individual and communities. I don't think a jobs guarantee would have that same effect. Although I still agree with Kim Stanley Robinson's position that all the steps in the right direction, like a jobs guarantee, would still be good. Let's get back to this argument that Graeber's making. So at this point, if you're with him, you believe that the government and the market are not opposed. In fact, the economy or the market is a tool created by governments to enhance their power. Plenty of people still know this story and think you can seize the government and make it work against the market for the people. I'm not one of them. Or rather, I just think that's always going to be a temporary or partial solution. But we haven't gotten yet to primordial debts, the other big myth. That is the title of the chapter. Graeber says that this is the myth of the chartalists, which means this is also the myth of the jobs guarantee and the democratic socialists. Graeber doesn't locate the myth of barter as right-wing and the myth of primordial debts as left-wing, but I am doing that. I think at least in 2023, that's how they work. So the people who have articulated primordial debt theory, a group of mostly French thinkers uh, located in the Vedas, I'm not sure how good of a claim that is. Hopefully Bill Maurer will be able to answer that when uh, he's on the show. But here's Graeber's explanation of primordial debt theory. 
The core argument is that any attempt to separate monetary policy from social policy is ultimately wrong. Primordial debt theorists insist that these have always been the same thing. Governments use taxes to create money, and they are able to do so because they have become the guardians of the debt that all citizens have to one another. This debt is the essence of society itself. It exists long before money in markets, and money in markets themselves are simply ways of chopping pieces of it up. Let me explain this logic and how I think it fits into left-wing thinking. The reason the government can tell you what to do is that by yourself, you are nothing. You're less than nothing. By yourself, you wouldn't be born. And when you are born, you owe everyone who came before you everything. You have not just nothing, but infinite debt. And you have to contribute to society, which the government is just another word for society, because of how much you owe. This is, I think, the opposite of mutual aid, in which everyone is always horizontally equal. This is a logic of vertical hierarchy. The Congress of Bread doesn't mean that you owe everyone who lived before you for bread. It means that the world is ready to welcome you because humans loved you before you were born. Mutual aid says we're all in this together, so we've got to keep pushing forward together. Primordial debt says that this was all put together before you were here, so you've got to pay it back. Graeber elaborates. The primordial debt, writes British sociologist Jeffrey Ingham, quote, is that owed by the living to the continuity and durability of the society that secures their individual existence. That's the end of Ingham, and then Graeber says, in this sense, it's not just criminals who owe a debt to society. We are all, in a certain sense, guilty. We are all criminals. We all owe society infinitely. If there is such a thing as society and if the government represents it, we all owe the government everything. Have you ever noticed how often progressives talk about instituting a national service? Not a national military service, but just a service. Every young person must work to pay back society. Uh, notice they never say that it should be instituted for everyone and people their age, only for the younger people, the people who owe them. And notice that it's never conceived of as an international service. This is just another version of that jobs guarantee. You have to contribute to society. And this idea that you have to contribute to society, well, actually, even though I think the left-wingers emphasize the myth of primordial debt, whereas the right-wingers emphasize the myth of barter, this idea of contributing to a society that you owe is something that left-wingers and right-wingers seem to agree on again. But if we take the primordial religious element of this seriously, and I'm, I'm not sure I do, and I'm not qualified to judge anything in the Vedas, Graeber identifies another problem. How do we go from that absolute debt we owe to God to the very specific debt we owe our cousins or the bartender? The answer provided by primordial debt theorists is, again, ingenious. If taxes represent our absolute debt to the society that created us, then the first step toward creating real money comes when we start calculating much more specific debts to society. Systems of fines, fees, and penalties, or even debts we owe to specific individuals we have wronged in some way, and thus to whom we stand in a relation of sin or guilt. Okay, that's the end of the quote. Now, I assume it seems intuitive to you that 
you live in a society and the government represents that society. But it isn't actually a natural way of being. Not in the way that it makes sense to owe a group that you definitely know who that group is and that you're a part of it and that other people are not part of it and you owe that group and you don't owe those other people. Graeber goes off on this for a while. Probably the biggest problem in this whole body of literature is the initial assumption that we begin with an infinite debt to something called society. It's this debt to society that we project onto the gods. It's the same debt that then gets taken up by kings and national governments. What makes the concept of society so deceptive is that we assume the world is organized into a series of compact modular units called societies and that all people know which one they're in. Historically, this is very rarely the case. Imagine I'm a Christian Armenian merchant living under the reign of Genghis Khan. What is society for me? Is it the city where I grew up? The society of international merchants with its own elaborate codes of conduct within which I conduct my daily affairs? Other speakers of Armenian, Christendom, or maybe just Orthodox Christendom, or the inhabitants of the Mongol Empire itself, which stretched from the Mediterranean to Korea. Historically, kingdoms and empires have rarely been the most important reference points in people's lives. Kingdoms rise and fall, they also strengthen and weaken, governments may make their presence known in people's lives quite sporadically, and many people in history were never entirely clear whose government they were actually in. Even until quite recently, Many of the world's inhabitants were never even quite sure what country they were supposed to be in or why it should matter. All right, that's the end of that quote. So all of this stuff about owing the government only makes sense within the nation state. The only way any of this can make sense, a jobs guarantee, national service, even just paying taxes, is if there's a horizontal grouping of people that's really clean and cut off from everyone else, and then those people have a single vertical sovereign ruling over them. Even if it's a democratic leviathan, there still has to be this vertical hierarchy that's made up of these people who all belong together. So you see, this wouldn't have made sense in any Neolithic or Paleolithic society. It wouldn't have made sense in Rome or Athens or ancient China or with the Incas or the Mayas. It only makes sense with the modern nation state. That this idea that there's something called society to which you owe everything and therefore you have to contribute to it. Here's some more graver. One might even say that what we really have in the idea of primordial debt is the ultimate nationalist myth. Once we owed our lives to the gods that created us, paid interest in the form of animal sacrifice, and ultimately paid back the principle with our lives. Now we owe it to the nation that formed us, pay interest in the form of taxes, and when it comes time to defend the nation against its enemies, to offer to pay it with our lives. And now I think we truly see what a lie, what a specifically 19th or very late 18th century lie the myth of primordial debt is. It was pretty much made up in 1793 to justify the mobilization of the entire male population of France. And now, despite all the supposed disagreements between people like Margaret Thatcher, who was, after all, like Reagan, the leader of a government, and someone like John Maynard Keynes, who was, after all, a believer in capitalism, Graeber has argued that both sides pretty much agree on both the myth of barter and the myth of primordial debt. Which brings us to the last paragraph of this chapter, 
which is where I started this episode. This is the great trap of the 20th century. On one side is the logic of the market, where we like to imagine we all start out as individuals who don't owe each other anything. On the other is the logic of the state, where we all begin with a debt we can never truly pay. We are constantly told that they are opposites, and that between them they contain the only real human possibilities. But it's a false dichotomy. States created markets, markets require states. Neither could continue without the other, at least in anything like the forms we would recognize today. All right. Next time I'll be speaking with the anthropologist Bill Maurer, who will be the first anthropologist in this series. He's written on primordial debt theory and Graeber's use of it, and he'll be able to give us for the first time the anthropological perspective on Graeber's work, which is at least ostensibly the field Graeber is working in. Uh, I imagine Bill will have something to say about that. Remember, you can always find me at everydayanarchism.com. You can email me at everydayanarchismpodcast at gmail.com. Listen to this ongoing series or any of my earlier episodes. Um, can always use your help financially. You can give it everydayanarchism.com or you can tell a friend or rate or review the podcast on Apple Podcasts on Spotify. All of these are a huge help. Finally, the music, which you are about to hear, is by David Hill. <laughs>